What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post, and I am joined on the other line by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Bad news for you, Rob. I am coming in hot after watching a ridiculous Giannis performance. Giannis really did it for the ink last night. I got to say, in Los Angeles, there was no Kawhi Leonard, no Paul George. Giannis said, no problem. Who cares about a superstar matchup? Just watch me do my thing. And I'll be honest, Rob, I didn't even really notice Kawhi wasn't out there when Giannis is on the court and I'm in his presence. It's a two-person relationship, okay? The other 20,000 fans, they're not there. The other media members, they're not there. The other nine players might as well just be pawns. All eyes on Giannis, and he delivered a pretty spectacular performance. But I got to say this. I always like to preach this idea of don't judge players or teams on their best day or their worst day. And Rob, I'm guilty of doing this. I think it was last week or maybe uh, two weeks ago, I came on here all fretting and nervous about the Milwaukee Bucks because they blew a 20-point lead against the Boston Celtics and kind of lost in embarrassing fashion. To me, that's their worst day of the season. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, They laid an egg in that second half. Uh, It wasn't great. But I also think in hindsight, it wasn't necessarily worth uh, overreacting to. I needed to provide a little bit more context. And thankfully, Rob, Giannis has provided some context here. Can I just briefly read his stat lines to you from the last four games? 29-14-6 in a win over Orlando. 36-15-8 in a revenge victory over Toronto, 34-15-6 in a win over Minnesota, and then last night against the Clippers, 38-16-9 plus two steals, two blocks, and about 15 winning plays down the stretch. Rob, I mean, what do you make of Giannis right now? Uh, Is he being slept on a little bit around the league? We didn't even get that many questions from the Open Floor Globe uh, about Giannis's run here over the last uh, week. Are people taking my guy for granted? Well, I mean, I do think it's amazing kind of MVP defense type stuff in terms of, you know, we spent the preseason talking about, okay, what is what is Steph Curry going to do with all these shots? What is James Harden going to look like? You know, talking ourselves into Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic as potential MVP candidates. And then Giannis just rolls the ball out and he's as dominant and as efficient and as savvy as he's ever been. I mean, it would be nice if he could shoot as well as he did against the Clippers on a nightly basis. But even without that, I think we'll settle for him being just about the most imposing force in the league right now. Now, It wouldn't be nice if he could shoot like that. It would be demoralizing. There would be people retiring from the NBA. I think there would be like a wave of retirements. If Giannis could go out there and hit four three-pointers a night, there'd be a lot of those guys, you know, the three, four combo forwards just saying, you know what? I've had enough. I just can't do this sport anymore. It's gone to a a place where I can't keep up. Um, The big storyline, I think, among their local media or maybe among their fan base about Giannis It's actually similar to one that we talked about with Kawhi a few weeks ago. It's the playmaking. I think Giannis is top 10 in assists right now. He's had some really spectacular passes over the last week. I mean, he's throwing no looks. Uh, He's getting himself into the paint, you know, drawing the extra defenders and then throwing these just crazy kickout passes, almost a little bit of like a poor man's LeBron to find his shooters. They seem like they've done a pretty good job of incorporating their new pieces into the system. Uh, guys like Wesley Matthews and, and Robin Lopez really aren't necessarily shooting the ball that well yet, um, but at least they're kind of getting a, a sense for how Milwaukee wants to play. And Giannis, even though he said last night that he's not necessarily feeling totally sharp with his own offense, ranks in the top five in scoring 
and Milwaukee has the league's best offense to date. So to me, I'm not sure the story is championship hangover or a deep playoff run hangover, which is sort of what I was thinking it might be after that Boston loss. It now starts to look like this is a team on a mission, right? Like a little bit of a revenge mission. Uh, Can you see that bubbling from Milwaukee? Well, I think they do have enough kind of fresh blood, like you mentioned, in terms of integrating some of these new pieces. They're obviously still kind of accounting for the fact that Malcolm Brogdon isn't there and making sense of that as well. So there there is enough that's kind of renewed and different about the team that they have to figure things out, which I think is healthy and good for a team in the Bucks position. You almost don't want to just run it back, like you're saying, and have that potential for a hangover. You want to give a you know a really great team a challenge beyond, okay, here's the things that kind of prevented you from advancing further in the playoffs. But on top of that, we want to work in Kyle Korver and we want to work in Wes Matthews and we want to work in Robin Lopez and all these guys uh, and, you know, find Dante DiVincenzo a bigger role. All these little things around the edges that can kind of keep guys on their toes and engaged and constantly kind of working mentally throughout the season to get them in the best possible position. And so I think that's where we find the Bucks. And there are going to be nights, as we saw earlier, you know, on their on their quote unquote worst night when things don't click quite the way they want or things look a little bit off uh, schematically or spiritually or what have you. But when they work, I mean, there, there, there just aren't many teams that can keep up with them, starting with Giannis and, you know, the, the uh, all the problems he creates in terms of a matchup. But then, as you're mentioning, the playmaking there, I think, and the, the conversation around playmakers in general is never quite as nuanced as it needs to be. I think we talk about scores in a pretty detailed and sophisticated way, but when it becomes a conversation about passing, it's just like, oh, this guy averages more assists than that guy. This guy's a point guard and that one is not, and therefore he's a better playmaker. But there really is kind of a fine-toothed comb you can go through the film uh, as far as from a playmaking standpoint. And that's where we do see, as you mentioned, Giannis evolving as a playmaker, really getting a little bit better timing, a little bit better positioning, uh, feeling out possessions even more effectively than he did previously. Yeah, and you know the Bucks GM John Horst, he's said going all the way back to like Giannis's pre-draft workouts that he always felt like Giannis had that playmaking or that passing vibe or instinct and that you know we just didn't really see it earlier in his career because the ball wasn't in his hands a ton Um, and then once it was I think there was an acclimation process to like okay how do I read defenses like how do I understand when it's my turn to do it versus when it's somebody else's turn to do it and then I think also you know before Bud got there there were spacing problems which uh, you know can you know crimp your personal statistics and maybe uh, camouflage uh, some skills that you have um, we saw a lot of good passing from Giannis last year. I still just think he really is improving. I think he's getting more creative. He's getting a little bit more daring. Uh, he's getting a better sense for the balance of when it's time to go punish people uh, and when it's time to pass. I mean, it would be very easy for a player with Giannis's physique, his athleticism, and his length to be like the NBA's biggest ball hog. You know, it would be so easy for him to do that, just to go downhill every single time. It would get tiring, of course, but if he was wired to score as many points as humanly possible, he would be scoring a lot more than he does currently, and their team's offense would be uh, a lot less efficient than it is. Um, I just, I continue to be blown away by him. I understand this entire podcast, you know, for the last three years has just been like one giant, like hyperbolic slurp of Giannis, but I just feel like he keeps raising it another notches. A couple things from last night. This guy is out there more than two hours before the game, going through contact workouts, taking hits from his assistant coaches, spin moves, duck-ins, turnaround jumpers, off-the-dribble jumpers, all the kinds of shots, the exact shots he takes in games. 
Uh, he, he, so it's a very thoughtful program, but it's also a very intense program. Rob, I kid you not, he's grunting through this thing, right? He's got like, was it Serena uh, Williams, the tennis player? Like when she really cranks it up, you can start to hear the grunt on the uh, on the uh, you know courtside microphones. That's how it is with Giannis. I mean, that's how hard he's going hours before the game. Uh, and then once you get out there, I thought the Clippers did a great job of matching his intensity. Montrez Harrell had a career night, but it was one of those games where it's like your career night is just another Wednesday for Giannis, right? I mean, that's the level that he's gotten to. It was a tour de force, but at the same time, uh, it was routine from him. Uh, and he closed it out, as I mentioned earlier, with the winning plays. And I think if you've got a superstar who has just off-the-charts talent, that's great. If you've got role players who uh, make winning plays, you know, like the Marcus Smarts of the world, the Robert Covingtons of the world, that's also great. But when your superstar is the guy who's making the winning plays, now you're really onto something special. He had a block shot in the corner. He had a couple of key offensive rebounds to extend possessions. He had four free throws in the final minute to kind of close things out. Um, he was just everywhere. I mean, and the guy cranks it up. And that's why I go back to this this concept of Milwaukee being on a mission. Now, I talked to their front office, John Horace, yesterday. He said, I am not over the Eastern Conference Finals, period. It still bothers me. We're, we still regret that we lost four straight. We were up 2-0. We had a 10-1 start to the playoffs, uh, and it all slipped away. I love that messaging from him. Uh, I can see it in how Giannis is carrying himself, uh, that he's on that mission, and I just hope it sustains uh, because this team is pretty special. They're naturally you know, perfectly set up to be overlooked by guys like us because they're not in L.A. like the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, you know, they're not dramatic like the Houston Rockets. Uh, they're not going through, you know, turmoil, like even some of these other small market teams, like say a Portland with the injuries where, you know, we talk about them. They're just this nice, quiet little machine that just runs like absolute crazy in a small market. Uh, and to me, I think they're, they're probably the most overlooked of the top tier teams so far to start this season by the national media. And I think they're right there with everybody. Well, I just want you to know that now that you've introduced this concept, we're going to need Giannis Grunt Watch 2019 for every time he comes to LA. <laughs> I want some, you know, we're, we have a podcast here. Let's get some some mics out there. Let's get some high quality recording. Let's splice it in here. Uh, okay. Uh, you focused on one thing about, I, I brought up like 20 <laughs> points, Rob, and, and you went for the absolute lowest hanging fruit. Thanks a lot. Uh, no, I want to read you uh, a quote from Horst about their summer. Because I think part of the reason why they were overlooked coming into this season has to do with that Malcolm Brogdon decision, right? Because you look, they retain most of their key pieces. They don't go out and have a splashy addition like an Anthony Davis or a Kevin Durant. Um, so they're not really in the middle of that free agency conversation. They're bringing back guys like Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, not really, you know, needle movers from a media perspective. And then the one obvious criticism you could make of them is they didn't pay up to keep Malcolm Brogdon. They decided to go with Eric Bledsoe, uh, you know, effectively instead uh, because they had already signed him to an early extension. And that kind of made the narrative uh, become, oh, this team is taking a step back. Um, is it going to be something that, you know, eventually contributes to Giannis wanting to leave in the future, right? And Horace, I thought, pushed back pretty hard on this idea. Here's what he said. I'm pained by Brogdon's departure. Yes. Malcolm's a great person and a great player. I wish him the best in Indiana. I don't feel like we were forced to do anything that we didn't want to do. We made a trade at the draft with Tony Snell that freed us up to be positioned to match any offers to Brogdon. 
We have an ownership group that has allowed us to do whatever we need to do financially. The decision on Malcolm really came down to what we thought we could get in return. Do we want to pay for what we think his market could be? Or do we want to see if we could get something that helps us now and going forward? I don't think it's said enough in the NBA that it's possible for both teams to win a trade. It's possible that we could be a better team without Malcolm. It's possible that he could be a better player in Indiana. It's possible that we could both do a good trade. Early on, that's what it looks like. So in that trade, they got back, I think, a first first round pick and multiple second round picks. They were at a pick deficit because they traded out four picks to get Miritich. Um, they also traded out picks to get George Hill, um, you know, last season. Uh, but are you buying uh, horse argument here that Milwaukee could be a better team without Brogdon? Um, or do you think he's just trying to maybe put uh, lipstick on a pig? Well, I do agree with the framework that too often we look at these things as who won the trade, who got the better player, who got the better draft pick, and there has to be kind of a winner and loser in these things when optimally both teams can benefit. So I do I do agree with his premise. But then when you really look at the substance of what he's saying, I don't really see how having another really good guard on this roster, which Malcolm Brogdon is, or you know, the absence of a very good guard on this roster would make the Bucks a better team. I'm just not kind of tracking that logically, even, you know, understanding that they're getting some picks, there's a certain kind of opportunity cost that comes with signing a big salary like that would be required to bring Brogdon back, even accounting for all of that stuff. Malcolm Brogdon's a really good player. He's a really good player who, if you needed to down the line, you could potentially trade for whatever it is that you're hoping to get by not re-signing Malcolm Brogdon. So what what was the gist of the message from Horst that you absorbed in terms of how exactly the Bucks would be better? I think what he's hinting at is that those pieces that came back might be more valuable trade assets than Brogdon on that number. Uh, I think that was his idea. And maybe it's because they want to be in a situation where they don't have to take back major salary. Um, I don't know. It did seem a little bit cryptic. I didn't follow his logic all the way there. Uh, but I, I, I think that he's essentially saying, look, we're not done, you know, we're, and they were very active midseason last year in terms of upgrading Giannis's, uh, supporting cast. And it's completely clear. I mean, top down, they're going for it this year. Like they want to win the title period, full stop. They're not messing around. Um, and so to me, that means they're going to be active at the deadline. And maybe he's just believing that, it, you know, there are just a little bit more liquid assets in terms of picks um, allows them to pursue a wider variety of players. Because if you do have Brogdon on that contract, you have to find a team that needs a player at his position. And you also have to find a team that's willing to pay him whatever it was like 20 something million dollars a year. And then I do think that maybe limits your your potential trade partners. At the same time, I'm with you. If they just had Brogdon, they're probably better. They may feel like right now that they can just replace what he brings to the table, having Giannis drive to the hoop more, uh, you know, keeping the ball in his hands, allowing Bledsoe to feel like he's the man, you know, feeling empowered, not looking over his shoulder. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a psychological benefit to not having Brogdon around. But I worry uh, about their depth, uh, their backcourt depth, if there's injuries. And then I also worry, obviously, about Bledsoe in the playoffs. We've been over that before. So I think the jury, in terms of if this can be a win-win trade, uh, to me, the jury is still out uh, from Milwaukee's side. I think Indiana for sure can claim victory. I mean, Brogdon's averaging like 22 and 10, and it's kind of crazy to start the season. Um, I think you were on the potential Brogdon for all-star train very early. Um, that's looking uh, you know, not impossible, not as crazy as it might have sounded during preseason. Uh, but for Milwaukee's side, it's going to be who can you get with those picks? 
uh, can you find another roster upgrade? And then does Bledsoe step up during the playoffs? Uh, I don't think we've heard the last of that conversation by any stretch. You know, I, I think it's going to be looming very large in May. Um, but I did appreciate sort of hearing his explanation, uh, you know, for that whole, uh, you know, that, that whole saga. When you're looking at Milwaukee uh, and trying to judge them against a team like Philadelphia, to me, it seems like Philly wins the top end talent side of that matchup. But maybe Milwaukee still wins the fit side. Like, what do you think is going to give first in, in that potential playoff matchup? Is it Philly um, being able to have the the strength, the size, uh, and the length to kind of muck up what Milwaukee wants to do uh, in terms of their their system and how their offense works? Or is it Philly's own you know fit questions coming back to bite them? What, what gives first? Well, history tells us that whichever team has the better seven or eight man rotation ends up usually winning that series. And so the high end talent is a pretty a pretty powerful counterweight when you're looking at a, a, you know any matchup in a postseason setting. That said, the fit questions there are so peculiar. And in a lot of ways, we won't know all the ways they manifest until we get to the scrutiny of the playoffs. I think we, you know, we'll see some over the course of the regular season in terms of you know lineups that just don't have enough shooting or enough creation. I mean, for one, it would be nice if Josh Richardson can hit some threes, which he has not been able to do so far as you know ostensibly the best three-point shooter in the starting lineup right now. So Philly has a lot to figure out to get to that point. And I think that's where Milwaukee can kind of fall back on having that fit, where they do have things to figure out, some you know some rotation questions of their own, but the core is so stable and solid. And even you know George Hill coming in and playing great minutes as he did against the Clippers, and kind of you know relieving some of the pressure that comes with a guy like Brogdon leaving the team. So they need to to you know figure out who kind of the seventh and eighth guys are. You know, consolidating some of these wing minutes between, you know, the Corvers and the Pat Connaughton's and the DiVincenzo's or, or uh, Sterling Brown or whoever ends up getting the majority of those minutes off the bench. But other than that, I kind of like the security that Milwaukee has. And it's going to be a great series no matter what, you know, how these teams end up playing out the regular season. Just their specific matchup is so great and all the pieces that Philly has put on the table to, to get in Giannis's way. But I think Milwaukee can feel pretty good about where they are, even without Brogdon. And that's even before we look at, as you mentioned, and as John Horace was alluding to, the potential for a midseason trade. Because the picks they got back in that Brogdon deal are not presumably to be used. They're used to be leveraged in a potential trade. Yeah, I mean, the Corver thing is hilarious. Like, he's running shotgun for LeBron there for a while. Now he's kind of, like, you know, gotten a little bit younger. You know, he's moved on to, like, his, uh, you know, third or fourth or fifth or ninth playmaker of his career and Giannis really looks for him, you know, and I think that they do have a lot of shooting out there. If they can get some of these guys rolling, especially Wes Matthews, I mean, I feel like he is a, a big-time X factor for that team, which is a little bit scary, uh, you know, at this stage of his career that they would be, you know, really relying upon him. But um, if he can get his shot going, uh, you know, that team can, you know, basically pour it in from every spot. I think right now they're tied uh, for the league lead in most three-pointers with Houston already. So, you know, to me, it really is like the machine just kind of continues to roll. You know, last thing real quick here to slurp Giannis, the way this guy treats his teammates is such a great example for players of all ages. Yesterday, there was that goofy little video that went around. I'm sure you saw it of Eric Bledsoe forgetting to inbound the ball and just kind of like walking onto the court, you know, and it's like a complete brain fart moment, but it's the kind of thing that can really last with guys for a long time, you know, J.R. Smith style, you know, blunder, 
Um, or like that Westbrook clip where he was just walking down the court instead of dribbling for like 10 steps and got called for a travel. Giannis's first instinct when he was asked about it was to take all the blame for it, to say, look, this is my fault. <laughs> I tried to call a play. I confused him. It's not Eric Bledsoe's fault. Who knows if that's even true, but I love that instinct from him, and he was in the sincerity with which he delivered it. He's trying to defend his guy, who has you know been the subject of a lot of criticism here over these last couple of years. On the flip side, when he's asked about his playmaking, his passing numbers, you know, top 10 in assists this year, career high assists, you know, more than seven per game. Um, are you seeing things differently? Ha, you know, have you taken a huge step forward? Immediately, he wants to defer all the credit to his shooters and says, look, I'm not doing anything different. These guys are just great shooters. They're hitting the shots. That is great leadership. That is what gets role guys to stay bought in for multiple years. It what It's what keeps them happy during a six or seven month season. It's what gets them back up after a very painful defeat in last year's playoffs, knowing your best player has your back and will defer credit uh, during tough times. You love to see it. And I think that he's, he's got a, an organization that has, you know, been shaped in his mold as a player, but also as an off court leader and off court personality. Uh, And man, I wish they would just move the bucks to Los Angeles so I could watch them, uh, you know, (laughs) 41 times a year from the comfort of the Staples center. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Um, let's shift gears, Rob. We've got a lot of great questions to get to from the Open Floor Globe this week. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Look, they never disappoint us, uh, Rob. They come through with the heaters. The first one's from Devante, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we do need to address it. He writes, Ben, great job to you and Rob for maintaining a great podcast. I was watching Undisputed today, and I heard Shannon Sharp say something that would be music to your ears. The two greatest abilities in sports are availability and accountability in reference to Kawhi Leonard's load management routine. The NBA indicated that he is sitting out against the Bucs and it was compliant with the league guidelines because he wasn't a healthy player. My question is, how should the NBA deal with this going forward? Allowing a star player and a finals MVP to miss a marquee matchup on ESPN with no clear, obvious injury is definitely an issue. Um, so Devonte, I think uh, I'm not sure everyone agrees with exactly how you're framing it. You know, I think that Kawhi Leonard believes that he has an ongoing medical issue that requires a certain level of treatment, a certain level of rest to maintain his health. So while it's not a broken arm, he doesn't need to go to the hospital tomorrow. It is something that requires, you know, basically 24/7, 365 attention and care. 
Rob, did it bother you that Kawhi Leonard chose to sit out the front half of a back-to-back where he decides not to go against Giannis in this final Eastern Conference Finals rematch that we all want to see, and instead he's going to play against the Blazers uh, on Thursday night? Do you have uh, a problem with that from a competitive standpoint? Are you with Shannon Sharp? Does this say something about Kawhi Leonard's character, uh, or where do you stand? No, I, I really don't care too much about it, other than it would have been nice to see the game with all the players on the court. That obviously, from an analysis standpoint, from an, an entertainment standpoint, would have been great, but without it, we move on. And that's this whole issue has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of scrutiny, in part because of the TV partners involved, in part because you know certain teams only get so many chances to see you know LeBron or Kawhi or these big name players come to town, but. This was also an L.A. home game. It's not like Giannis sat out the game. I don't think Clipper fans were all that deprived. I mean, the game turned out great regardless, turned out to be really competitive. And if we really kind of isolate and drill down on this problem, it's not that Kawhi is missing some games, but it's the way in which he's proactively missing games and the fact that the appropriate parties don't feel like they have enough advanced warning to deal with that. So I do wonder if there's a way to kind of circumvent that problem. If there's, you know... At the beginning of the season or the beginning of the month or even the beginning of the week, if it's possible for teams to better inform the league and the you know the relevant partners that hey Kawhi is not going to play on the sec- you know in one of the back-to-back games this season. If there's a way to for one, you shouldn't be scheduling back-to-back national TV games for pretty much any team for just this reason because if it's not Kawhi, it's going to be someone else on another team who's injured or going to be dinged up or going to be trying to get some rest. That's the realities of the NBA schedule and the way that it's managed in the modern NBA. So if you can account for that, if you can give you know ESPN time to to flex out of that game if they want to, maybe they they would rather have Sixers Jazz for their late game spot. If there's you know some flexibility for that, if you can give notice to the people who are buying tickets or some kind of option for ticket insurance or some kind of buyback program, or again just give people notice ahead of time that hey Kawhi Leonard is probably not going to play in this game. Um, and it's still, again, for the people who do show up, for the people who do tune in, it still could be a great time, a great game. But I feel like there are a lot of mechanisms around this that could be preventative in just the way that everyone seems to be complaining about. Yeah, well, in this specific case, look, you got your money's worth. Giannis gave you 38, 19, and 9 or something like that. Like that, You're, you're going home happy, okay? You saw a phenomenal player turning in a great game. Yes, it would have been more fun with Kawhi, but it's not like, you know, you got bamboozled and hoodwinked with, you know, fake tickets and a uh, a bait and switch like you still got very high level basketball and the Clippers you know really showed up and showed out now in terms of a couple of things that you said there uh Doc Rivers was asked would you ever consider giving a lot of advance notice and he said look this is like a day-by-day type of uh, management thing we're not going to know a week in advance uh that's just not how it works I can understand his viewpoint on that and also I think that viewpoint is colored and shaped by this idea that because the NBA doesn't require the advanced warning uh, why would they seek to just give that out for free? It does feel like a little bit of a competitive advantage, uh, and you would want to disguise that, you know, at least to you know some level. Now, in terms of when you get to pick your your nights off, um, I, this is a team decision. I think there's a front office decision, a coaching decision. If if you want to have him sit on the tougher game to maximize your chance in the other game, that makes logical sense to me. I think you should be able to do that. Um, unless the NBA came through with like, you know, stricter guidelines about uh, when you're allowed to have guys sit um, and everybody agrees to it and the voters rat- or the owners ratify it and all that. Um, I think the Clippers are, are being annoying to the viewing public. There's no question, but they're not breaking rules 
and I don't think that they're uh, harming the sport nearly as much as you know some people wanted to say. Now, did it rub you the wrong way at all, Rob, that some of the people reporting or commentating on this issue are in the middle of a gigantic conflict of interest because they work for the NBA's television partners. Uh, that was one thing that I just had a hard time kind of getting over is like, as all this outrage is being, you know, manufactured or, or kicked up to a certain degree uh, in the 24 hours before the matchup, once it became clear Kawhi wasn't going to play, a lot of the people who were upset were employees of the network broadcasting the game. That doesn't feel like a healthy uh, separation of church and state, you know? And it's, it's something, too, that you can overcome pretty easily in terms of disclosure or framing of your argument. I mean, you can feel however you want personally about the fact that you don't get to see or cover a game featuring Giannis and Kawhi in it. Like, I think anyone going to that game or covering that game would feel, you know, it's certainly a bummer. You know, like, it's not the optimal scenario, but... Again, it turned out to be a great game, turned out to be a great display of the NBA product, and there's a way to have a nuanced conversation around that without dwelling quite so much on the load management issue. It's it's a story, it's a relevant part of the league as we know it today, and it's certainly not going away, but the the portrayal of it as some kind of catastrophic problem just because it happens to be on ESPN Airwaves that particular night does does certainly hit me in a particular way. Yeah. It wasn't great. Uh, it felt a little dirty. I mean, come on, guys. Like, let's let's all get a reality check. I understand the frustration. I understand the concern that this could continue to happen 10 times and it's going to have an effect on the bottom line. But um, the deals have been signed. Uh, you know, when the schedule was made, it was a reasonable concern. I think that either the television partners or the schedule makers, I'm sure this issue comes up. I'm sure they discussed it. Um, and... I just don't think anyone should have been surprised in, in that 24-hour period that this is how it was going to go down for Kawhi. He hasn't played back-to-back -back since like 2017. Uh, what did you think was going to happen? And are you genuinely that angry? There is one final funny kind of postscript on this, though, Rob. They showed Kawhi and Paul George on the bench uh, during the fourth quarter, like on the Jumbotron. And... It was at least a mixed response from the crowd, if not trending towards the negative. Now, I don't know if it was the Bucks fans in attendance because there were some there who were pretty loud, but it sounded an awful lot like boos and jeers when they showed those guys on the Jumbotron. And I did not expect that. And that's a little bit weird, right? Because if you've got Clippers fans that upset about not seeing Kawhi play, that's an issue for the organization. That means they have not communicated their plan clearly enough. That means they have not convinced their fans about you know the status of uh, you know Kawhi's health, and that's something that you have to watch because uh, this is a new relationship, right? You still have to kind of court these superstar players, make them feel comfortable, make them feel beloved. That's a big part of how the NBA works. You don't want your main guy getting booed by your home crowd because he needs to sit out to manage his leg injury. You know what I mean? It's really odd, and I think it does strike at the fact that the conversation around load load management is so much more about the messaging of it and the optics of it than anything having to do with Kawhi Leonard actually missing some games or any player actually choosing to proactively miss some games. Because I think every team is within their right to do that. It's just about communicating that as clearly as possible to, to fans, to partners, you know, but while holding those same advantages that you alluded to, Ben. And then also, you know, if you're the Clippers trying to decide between these two games, if you're going to sit Kawhi or whoever in, you know, a back-to-back -back situation, not only are you, are you trying to pick between 
you know, the Blazers and the Bucks in terms of which game you want Kawhi to play and trying to get the guaranteed win in that scenario as much as possible. But you're also deciding how much do we want to show the Bucks a potential finals opponent in terms of what we look like with Kawhi Leonard on the floor against their team. How much do we want to potentially send a message if we're able to beat the Bucks without Kawhi Leonard or Paul George on the floor? And what kind of message will that send to them in within this matchup to our guys in terms of what that could look like uh, if these two teams ever meet in the playoffs? Whereas Portland, I think you're looking at that and saying, okay, we feel pretty good about that matchup regardless. We don't necessarily need to hold anything back. Uh, maybe we do just go for the win there. So it's it's complicated. It's thorny even beyond just like the health and science aspect, which is you know certainly complex enough in itself to, to parse all of the implications involved. Yeah, I think just to quote Taylor Swift here, guys, you need to calm down, okay? We know Kawhi is not going to play in back-to-backs. It's not worth being this upset about. Um, and, you know, factor it into the next contract negotiations. Uh, you guys made your point. We understand that you're upset. We understand you want to have the marquee matchups to drive the ratings on television. Um but I don't think that we're entitled to the assumption that star players are going to be playing 82 t- uh, times a year. And it hasn't been that way for years. You know, this is the modern NBA come around to the reality. I don't think it's that complicated to get to wrap your mind around. Uh, and if you understand those things and you're still angry, I'm not sure anybody should listen to you. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean? Yes. All right. Let's uh, shift gears to lighter subject. All right. Mike from Brooklyn writes, hey, Ben and Rob. This past Sunday, I ran all 26.2 miles of the New York City Marathon wearing an old-school blue and orange Knicks cap. I thought wearing the hat would serve as an inspiring metaphor for, for participating in the race itself and that rocking it while I tore through the streets of all five boroughs would inspire cheers and make me a hero. You may or may not be surprised to learn that out of the 2 million spectators lining the streets that day, Less than five people commented on the Knicks hat the whole race and only one or two with any real enthusiasm. Was I unrealistic to expect an outpouring of support? Is it plausible that only five Knicks fans saw the hat or did my hat just embarrass the true Knicks fans in the crowd? Did they feel sorry for me and for themselves and celebrate my loyalty by wincing silently as I passed by? In hindsight, I guess I should have worn a Taco Fall jersey. Brilliant writing uh, from that emailer. So thank you so much for that. Rob, what do you think? How do you explain the snubbing by 2 million marathon observers of our poor guy, Mike from Brooklyn? Well, I mean, first of all, congrats to Mike on the finish. I mean, it's an, an incredible accomplishment. Cheers or not. And so, I mean, on the hat... I won't claim any unique insight into the psyche of Knicks fans or, or Knicks fandom in general. But no. I can't say look, you're the pulse of the big apple. This is why we're <laughs> throwing this question to you. Nothing it's true. Nothing says, you know, yellow cabs and skyscrapers quite like Rob Mahoney from Silicon Valley, but go ahead. Well, I just can't say I'm all that surprised to hear that a fan base that's, you know, notorious for showing up to games with bags on their heads. Uh, a fan base that supports the team with the worst record in the league to date, uh, a fan base that you know routinely pleads with James Dolan to sell the team. The same James, the same James Dolan who, I don't think this really can be said enough, wrote and sang a song about how he should have been the man to stop his friend Harvey Weinstein and then released it out into the world. I, you know, I would have expected some solidarity from Knicks fans under these circumstances, but I, I kind of get it. 
I'm wondering if it's less about the Knicks fans' psyche, which is obviously beaten down, but it's all—it's also not a new phenomenon, right? Like they've been horribly mistreated for decades, right? So if you're still a Knicks fan, I don't think the last couple of years have really changed your approach that much, one way or the other. I wonder though, is it just a matter of you're wearing a Knicks hat in New York, therefore it's not that original or different, and so it just kind of blurs in with what people see all the time, right? Um, like when I go to New York, I, you can't go a block without seeing a Yankees hat, right? I mean, there's, there's certain like just local cultural sports icons that are just everywhere and they all kind of blur together. If he wore a Knicks hat to the LA marathon, don't you think he's going to be getting more than like five people commenting about it? Or if he wore a Knicks hat to the Chicago marathon, or you kind of get my point, right? Like if I wear Michigan gear around in Southern California, I get go blues all the time because everyone's excited to have a connection randomly thousands of miles away from Ann Arbor. Right. If I wear a Michigan shirt to a Michigan football game, I don't hear as many go blues. You know what I mean? So is this just maybe a zip code location type of an issue for him? Well, maybe even if he had worn a Nets cap or if you're in LA, if you were, well, Clippers look, gear. if you're wearing a Nets cap, you're not hearing from anybody. Okay. Let's, I mean, that's it's still true. true to this day. They could do whatever they want with the court. They could turn the whole franchise over to Kyrie. Uh, this whole notion that they're going to be taking over New York. I am still skeptical, but sorry, continue. Oh no. I mean, I, I do think that that is in play given that we're only talking about, you know, five or so Knicks fans who said something to Mike, but I think the best way and the healthiest way to look at it is just that all of the millions of observers were cheering you on one way or another, Knicks or not. You're being really nice to Mike. I, Mike, it's it's possible the city hates you. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, here's what I would do, Mike, to test your theory. And this is in all seriousness. Next year, you got to run the marathon with an R.J. Barrett jersey, okay? Because that shows just a different level of of specificity and commitment to a certain guy. He'll probably be the prince of the city by that point. He's had a pretty decent start here uh, as a rookie, um, you know, to put it mildly. And I think if you went a little bit more personalized with, with the jersey, you would hear from more people. They might yell out RJ as you're going by, you know, Maple Jordan, whatever else. I think you would get more of a response. Uh, I, I think you just need to go bolder, Mike. Um and if that doesn't work, I would recommend like orange running tights, you know, just like full, just go like full Knicks Halloween costume approach uh, for the marathon. And uh, I would also say, though, run the marathon for yourself. Don't run it for the applause from your fellow Knicks fans. If you're seeking validation from a poor downtrodden fan base spread across all five boroughs, as you said, you're going to be looking for a long time, man. You've got to find your happiness from within. All right. Let's shift gears. Alex writes, Mark Jackson just said on the broadcast that Reggie Miller deserves a statue. My first thought was that statues are reserved for champions. Retire his jersey, of course retire his jersey. But a whole statue outside the arena seems like overkill. Guys, what are your thoughts on statues? Do you agree? Does Miller deserve one? What do you think, Rob? Would it be appropriate for the Pacers to build Reggie Miller a statue outside their building and if so, what should the statue look like? Well, I mean, we live in a world where RoboCop has a statue. Rocky has a statue. The Fonz has a statue. I think I'm cool <laughs> with Reggie Miller getting a statue. Um, you know, any player of singular importance to a franchise, I think, is fair game. As to what it looks like, 
I mean, it's got to be some kind of jump shooting form just because it's, you know, such an evocative kind of dramatic look. I can't think of a, a particular shot, though, maybe with some, you know, the legs kicking out, flaring out a little bit in, in kind of trademark Reggie style. But I, I think it could look look pretty slick, to be honest. That's a great idea. Have an offensive foul statue where he's, kick, he's <laughs> kicking his foot forward, the Reggie Miller rule statue. I was actually thinking, you remember when he wrapped his two hands around his neck with the choking sign? Oh, that's a great one. Shouldn't that be the statue? I mean... It would be a little bit scary, and I, I don't know exactly, but that's like the first image that comes to mind when I think of Reggie Miller. It would be hilarious if they made that a statue. Um, Alex, I'm glad that you asked this question because one of the very first things I wrote like 10 or 12 years ago was a formula to determine whether a player should be able to have his jersey retired, and I went through kind of the main categories for what you know would, would deserve a jersey retirement. Uh, how long were they with the franchise? What were their stats like? Were they with that franchise during their prime? Did they start their career there? Did they end their career there? What were their connections like, you know, before, during, and after their uh, career with the local fan base to try to quantify, you know, what, who deserves this uh, recognition and who doesn't? I think with the statue, though, you're focusing maybe on the wrong uh, central point when you're talking about championships. Because remember, I mean, the NBA is not really a parody-driven league, right? So the Lakers are going to have, you know, 15 statues out front of Staples Center. And they do, by the way. And a lot of them are very cool. Um, but there's going to be a lot of franchises who are never going to get a statue if you only are going to allow them to get statues for champions, right? That doesn't seem fair to me. Uh, I think every organization should have the same opportunity to build a statue as every other organization. Uh, I get that that could get dreary, you know, in certain cases. Like Charlotte. Uh, I mean, I guess Kemba Walker would probably be the guy who would get his statue and maybe deserve it. Um, but, you know, there, there's some organizations where the, the list of candidates really isn't that great. I'm not saying force it with the statues. I'm not saying everyone has to make statues, just they deserve the, the opportunity to have one. I think the most important characteristic, though, Rob, it's the emotional pull and connection with the fan base, right? Um, and so, like, with the Blazers, for example, if they put up a Brandon Roy statue, there's not going to be any complaints, right? Everyone's going to be very excited. And I think the litmus test is, if you heard about the statue, how likely are you to like race over to it and get your picture taken with it, right? Because like when I went to the United Center for the first time to cover a playoff game, you know what my first stop was. It was the Jordan statue. You had to see it. They had the jersey on it outdoors. Um, you know, you just take a moment to appreciate it, think back on all the great memories, you know, snap a couple selfies with it. I mean, that's that's part of the experience. It, it really is for the fans, uh, less so than, uh, you know, for the organization or even for the individual uh, player, frankly, because the player is not going to go see his own statue maybe more than once or twice in his life, right? So it's all about the emotional connection. And I think in this case, Alex, Reggie Miller passes, wouldn't you say he has enough of a emotional connection with Pacers fans? He's an, enough of an icon for that organization that he should get a statue. Mark Jackson, I hate to say it, is right. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the most beloved Pacer in the history of Pacers. And I do think that the framing of this is all wrong. You know, sorry, Alex, but championships are a team award. I think the further we can move away from kind of the tyranny of rings and that piece of the conversation, the better. For sure. Well, I love the tyranny of rings. Okay, I'm tyrannical. There's no doubt. Ugh. But, uh, well, come on, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're out here trying to hype up Michael Jordan at all costs, okay? That's very important. Um, I just think that 
the statues are pretty cool. Like the Lakers do a good job with the statues. They've got Shaq, they've got Kobe, the Magic Johnson statue is really cool. I think they've got Kareem up there now, Jerry West. Every single game, people go take pictures with them. That's like a real attraction, a real deal. When they do the statue unveiling, they get all the heavy hitters. I mean, the A-list guys from NBA history come out uh, for those events. I was there when they unveiled Shaqs. It was really cool. I mean, it was like just you, you got goosebumps as a basketball fan and a basketball historian. Um, you're just seeing all the star power lined up. And so it's something you don't want to abuse. But if your franchise has that iconic player and he's never won a title, don't let that stand in between you and, you know, 50 years of great memories uh, for the next generation of fans. And actually, I think I would be more in favor of kind of premature statues as well. Like while the player is still with the team, let's get the statue up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, l- l- let me finish. I think in a, you know, in kind of an over-dramatized version of the like fan burning Kevin Durant's jersey or whatever, can you imagine what would have to happen if like Cleveland, the first time LeBron left, had to like melt down a LeBron statue upon his exit? Okay, I'm just picturing like a James Harden statue where he's making it rain out front of the Toyota Center or something like this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, we should maybe do a little survey here. Like, are there guys who do you think right now in the NBA comes to mind if we're saying let's give them statues? I would say Steph Curry for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, who else are we giving statues and where are we giving them? Uh, LeBron gets a statue outside the Cleveland uh, building, even though he left twice. Right. Yeah, and I think and Kevin Durant was on record, I believe, with Chris Haynes of Yahoo last year in saying that all that Warriors team deserves statues outside the Chase Center with well, Iguodala and Draymond and Clay, and let's just get the whole lineup out there. Sorry, Kev, I don't think you're getting a statue for your three-year stint there, especially the way the last season ended. Okay, maybe we can have a statue of you and Ethan Sherwood Strauss, like you know, play boxing at a press conference. Maybe that'd be a good statue, and, and the fans could come up and. <laughs> You could either pick to be Kevin or pick to be Ethan. I mean, that could be a, a fun interactive uh, episode, but I I get where he's going with that. You, you deserve to have your number retired. You had two incredible finals performances that have been vastly underrated by history, but he's missing the point of what we're describing. It's not just about the titles. It's about the emotional connection and the, and the staying power too. Um, I don't think you get a statue forever for three years. That's just my take. No, I think that's fair. I mean, I think Dirk and Wade will probably get theirs. In terms of current players, I mean, some of it's going to be kind of reshaped by this kind of mercenary player empowerment era, right? In a world where if you don't stay with a team for more than three or four years, do you ever deserve a statue? What if we're using your idea um, and we're taking it to the nth degree? So rather than just honoring current players, what if teams are using statues as a way to try to keep people in free agency like i'm picturing milwaukee instead of just like a 20 foot tall or a 10 foot tall statue um like the ones that most teams put out front what if they made like a 150 foot tall statue of Giannis and put it like right outside the arena i'm saying like it looks like its own building but it's in Giannis's uh likeness that would make it harder for me to leave if i was Giannis. (laughs) (laughs) this is a perfect plan as far as i'm concerned all right, other guys with uh, statue potential down the road. Uh, Trey Young, too crazy. We're we're a ways out, but I could see it. Um, I think uh, your point on the player movement thing is, is right on, though. You know, a lot of these guys, I'm not sure they're going to be hanging out long enough. I guess Jokic could get into the, the statue conversation, although they would probably prefer to just save the medal for you know some tributes to the Denver Broncos uh, in, in that city. Um, 
What about like Marcus Saul in Memphis? Would you get like a Marcus Saul Mike Conley dual statue if you were in Memphis? I mean, I could see like a big mural or something. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked by a statue. Maybe maybe there's like a Tony Allen and a Zach Randolph in there too for like the complete picture. But I don't know. I, they're, they're kind of on the cusp of that. I think unquestionably will have their jerseys retired. Statue, they certainly have a big place in, in that kind of fan base and the lore of that team. But I, I could kind of see it going either way. I think Russell Westbrook's probably a shoe in for OKC, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. What about DeRozan in Toronto? I mean, they got all those hockey guys mm-hmm. outside the Toronto building. Maybe they can go DeRozan. Um, I do think, though, I'm, I might be with Alex on this point. Like, you could go too far with the statues, right? Like, if we're saying we want to have four or five guys from the same team all have statues, to me, that's overkill. Find a different way to honor them. Uh, maybe it's something on the concourse, like in the building. Maybe it's murals, like you're mentioning, you know, pictures of the practice facility, retire their jerseys. All that stuff is good. But you could definitely... Like, you don't want to turn this into a wax museum. You know what I mean? Where it's like, hey, here's every random celebrity from our, our uh, city's history all being honored side by side. It just it diminishes the importance of it. So um, I would say be selective, but also, you know, every team feel empowered to have your own statue. It's, uh, it's a pretty good time. All right. Let's uh, take on a little bit more of a serious subject from Liam. Okay, Rob? He writes, as you know, I'm a Bulls fan. I've been wrestling with Zach Levine for a long time. He's just not my cup of tea, and I try to talk myself into him. His defense is atrocious, but so is Trey Young's, and plenty of stars have been bad on defense. You know, Steph Curry is hardly Dikembe Mutombo. The key difference is decision-making and playmaking. James Harden plays at an MVP level with questionable defense. Russell Westbrook can carry you to the playoffs in the West. You can get away with bad defense if you score the ball and make other players better. Ricky Rubio can't shoot, but he's having a positive impact because he can defend and play make at a high level. Chris Dunn is bad on the Bulls because he can only defend. The best players on a championship team can do all three things. Can we stop talking about two-way players and start thinking about one, two, three-dimensional players instead? I'd be fascinated to hear what you guys think. So what he's really saying, Rob, is is two-way player too simplistic of a term when we know that there are maybe more facets to, you know, a truly a winning and complete player than just being able to play defense and being able to score. Like, is he onto something here uh, with that specific phrase and, and how much we use it uh, and how it, it might actually be misleading? Well, if the third dimension in this case is making your teammates better, I think that's pretty implicit in offense and defense. It's already kind of part of the context that's baked in where, if you score with enough force or efficiency, even if you're not you know, a playmaker or getting that many assists yourself, you can make your teammates better. And if you can pick up the toughest defensive matchup every night and do pretty competently in that matchup, then you can make your teammates better because they don't have to pick up that guy. So I think there are lots of ways to kind of help the people around you. And most of them fall broadly into offense or defense one way or the other. The problem is just that our conceptions of those two sides of the ball and what they mean are anchored in a very particular way where there's, you know, there's so much more to offense than scoring. So if you're looking at a two-way player as a guy who can score and a guy who can defend, then yes, you need to kind of broaden out beyond that. But I feel like most of the two-way player conversation is already, you know, at least fairly nuanced in terms of accounting for guys who do make the players around them better. Yeah, I think, uh I think I agree with most of what you said. I think uh, for Liam, 
I wouldn't put too much emphasis on this phrase two-way player, right? Like this is not the end-all be-all of what you want from a, from a player is the idea that he can be a plus defender and a plus offensive piece. I think it's really, it's more helpful in weeding out players who aren't two-way players, right? Like if you can't claim that status, then you are kind of flawed fundamentally to a degree where, uh, you know, you have to be thought of in a different manner. Even if you're an extraordinary offensive player, um, you know, you don't really get to have that tag. And so, you know, if you're evaluating like superstar level guys, people who can do it on both ends are going to get a bump over people who can't. I think that's fair. Uh, and if you're evaluating role players like, you know, Zach Levine, I mean, to me, again, it's fair. Like, would you rather have a guy who's, you know, good on both sides or great on one side and, and terrible on the other? I think it's easier to build a team and to build a, a functional environment with lots of guys who are good in both ways. So I think the phrase has some utility. I do think it's overused. I think I'm guilty of overusing it. And I do think that it kind of has this connotation of being uh, like, com you know, fully complete, like everything you would want from a player. And I think his point is well taken. Like you can be a helpful offensive player and still have major holes in your game that, you know, prevent you from, you know, truly being the best guy at your position or one of the best players at your position. So I wouldn't fixate too much on it, Liam. Uh, instead, I would just channel all of your angst every time, you know, onto Zach Levine every time he makes a defensive blunder because uh, that will, there's no shortage of opportunities uh, for you to let all those negative feelings out. You'll feel better afterwards. Um, but yeah, don't, don't get hung up on that. Well, some of this feels like an issue of, with the discourse too. It's right. Like, with media members, we talk about so many different players, so many different teams. We kind of like create new ways to describe them. Like this is the best pound for pound point guard, or this is, you know, like all these different descriptors when we're really trying to kind of talk our way around certain exceptions to say that a guy is really good. But like the bottom line is the best two-way shooting guard in the league is James Harden. Even though he's not a very good defender, his offense is just overwhelmingly good. And so I think that's where Levine and guys of his ilk have some trouble, which is their offense is good, but fundamentally he's pretty inefficient. Like this season, even, you know, with, you know, a couple of, of nice performances lately that have buoyed him a little bit is still basically in Andrew Wiggins territory in terms of true shooting and stuff like that. And if you're at that level and you're a poor team defender and you're not making like plus level passes, not just passes that come from having the ball in your hands, but really creating meaningfully better looks for your teammates, I'm just not sure how much you're really like moving the needle in a team sense. And see, this is where I would actually pick a semantic argument with, with you, because I would not say that James Harden is what I would consider the best two-way shooting guard out there, but he is the best all-around shooting guard out there. And his offense is so much better than his defense is bad that he's the, you know, the best player at his position. Yet I would not give him that two-way label because of this sort of artificial conversation we've put around the two-way thing. So I think Leem's got a point here. Uh, it's not as meaningful as we it might seem at first glance. We should probably be using more specific language when we talk about these guys. Um, but at the same time, anything that we can use to call out bad defenders, I'm actually kind of in favor of. <laughs> like, we need to have more emphasis on people who just are not trying on that end of the court because um, you know it's basically half the game, and I think it's about 5% of the discourse and the conversation. So... Uh, I think on balance, I'm probably still in favor of using the phrase two-way player, but I'm acknowledging all the limitations of that phrase that uh, he has brought to the table. 
well, maybe the fact that we do disagree. I mean, to me, two-way and all-around are synonymous, basically. Like, all-around is encompassing all areas of the game. Two-way is encompassing both sides of the ball. Like, those, to me, are the same thing. But the fact that we disagree on the semantics of it may be in service of Liam's larger point. Right. I would... See, when I say all-around, I'm taking into account everything. So it's like, you know, the playmaking, making your teammates better, personality, um, you know, all those kinds of things. Whereas with two-way, I'm more thinking of, like, what can you do on offense? What can you do on defense? Um, but like I said, semantics, um, let's close out here with a couple more quick ones. Joshua writes, your podcast has always been special to me since the very first podcast I ever listened to. Wow. Joshua, incredible taste off the bat from you. Good job (laughs) for context. I listened to you guys talking about DeMarcus Cousins's chemistry with Anthony Davis playing for the Pelicans. Anyway, do you think it's time for the Rockets to fire D'Antoni? So, Rob, just real quick, do you think Joshua made up this whole backstory just to you know make sure that I would read this question? Because it does read like maybe he knew which of my buttons to push, and he was successful. Uh, to slip in a heater question like this at the end of it, I thought it was just brilliant work from the Open Floor Globe. It was an incredible left turn. And and like I want everyone out there listening to note that this does work. Butter up your hosts right off the bat, throw in the craziest question to follow it that doesn't really have anything to do with what you said before, and we will probably read it on the air. Uh, there's no there's no doubt about it. So are we firing D'Antoni? Um, you know, they're still just pathetic on defense. Uh, they're making a lot of excuses on offense about, oh, you know, we weren't necessarily in shape to start the year. And, you know, these guys are figuring it out. Harden's not going to play this poorly the, you know, the entire season. Um, I laid out all of my concerns to you before the year about just the bad vibe with the Maury situation, uh, D'Antoni's contract, the owner being the owner, and then the pairing between Westbrook and Harden. Um, I predicted fireworks, I believe. I'm not sure I'm ready to fire uh, D'Antoni yet, um, but this is not going well for them, and they're going to have to decide that at some point, um, don't you think? I mean, isn't isn't that a possible outcome here if this kind of uh, you know slog continues? Well, I mean, it's certainly notable that in all the things you listed about what was going wrong, and maybe you could lump the defense into this category if anything, but very few of them were specific to D'Antoni or would really be placed at his feet primarily. Oh, and for sure. This it's not a case where you're firing him because of incompetence, right? right? It's it's a fall guy situation. Yeah. If the question is, will Mike D'Antoni be fired this season? I think there's certainly a chance that happens, especially given the ownership involved. If the question is, do we think it's time to? My answer would be they have played eight games to date. And that is the pretty much the extent of my answer. Yeah, and I think that it could be a situation where Harden got off to the super slow start last year and then just cranked it up in the second half and they... They rose so dramatically in the standings that I feel like he's probably thinking that's a reasonable approach to every season, right? Like, I'm not going to load manage in the way that Kawhi does by taking games off, you know, uh, you know, every fifth night. But I'm going to just work my way into condition for the first, you know, month and a half and then, you know, kick it up down the stretch. We'll see. I mean, that's that's not necessarily the... Uh, the smartest and safest philosophy when you've got to play for, you know, positioning, um, you know, in the standings for home court and things like that. Um, to me, that's playing with fire a little bit. I do think that their chemistry situation is just a little bit dicey right now, uh, but we'll see if it works out for them. Um, I would be nervous if I was all those guys, because again, I, I'm not sure I trust the owner uh, at this point. I don't think he's, he's earned that trust with how he has presented himself publicly, how he's c- carried the, the organization, the things he said about former players 
it all just rubs me the wrong way. And if I was D'Antoni, I would be frustrated I came into the, con- the, the season as a lame duck. If I was Maury, I would be very nervous about everything uh, just because, you know, he, he almost started World War III. I mean, that would make anybody nervous. And um, the easy way for all these problems to go away was for James to put everybody on his back and play like an MVP. And that just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I mean, if you're James Harden, you're probably pretty safe. If you are literally anyone else with the Rockets below ownership, there's always a question that you could be moved or fired or summarily dismissed for almost no reason whatsoever other than the fact that the team might need a midseason change. Yeah, and the other guy is Westbrook. I mean, he's he might be unmovable <laughs> now that right. you've, ta- you know, you've taken him on. So, uh, you know, they made their bed down there, man. Like, look, they— they were so passionate defending that trade. It really made me roll my eyes at the time. Uh, I'm not sure what else they were supposed to do once they decided that they had to move on from Chris Paul, but uh, I've been you know, selling their stock for the last three or four months, and I'm feeling great about it. All right, last question. It comes from Matt. He writes, I just wanted to know if you noticed, Ben, that Zach Levine is short of only one shooting sleeve tonight against the Hawks. Otherwise, he would be hitting your astronaut look that you were talking about on the last episode. He's got the white T-shirt with a single arm sleeve and the white tights. So, Rob, I wasn't sure when I laid out my dream outfit if I was going to have any, like, companions. And I think it's just perfectly appropriate (laughs) that one of my least favorite NBA players actually essentially has, you know, brought my own personal look uh, to the NBA hardwood. What have you done? What, what what have you brought upon this league, Ben? Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, we got a lot of feedback on my look. I'll be honest, Rob. Not a lot of people are feeling your boy, okay? Like, it was basically <laughs> nine to one negative. Um, yeah. I think the one positive person was actually my younger brother who accused me of plagiarizing my look from some television show called Community. Now, I don't watch that show, but apparently there's a mascot who's, like, covered head to toe so you can't see any of his skin. Uh, with this, you know, this white outfit, this astronaut-like uh, look, I just encourage Zach Levine. If you can't be a two-way player, at least be a two-arm sleeve type of guy. You know, like let's just get into it, cover all the skin. It'll be a great look. Go for the full black scuba uh, diver look when you go on the road games. It'll be fantastic. I think actually it's pretty marketable. You know, if if I was uh, one of these upstart sneaker companies looking to make a splash. I would want a guy who looks and carries himself a little bit different than all the rest. I think it's a, a just a natural fit. Well, now that you've spoken this into existence, do you have anything else you want to heat check on? Anything else you want to see happen in the next week or so? I want Zion in the dunk contest, all right? I'm just going to put that out there. I understand that it's not looking great because of the whole injury situation, um, and guys are reluctant to do it. They're too famous, like Zion. Focus on the big picture. All right, you can do this. You can own the slam dunk contest. Look what it did for some of these guys in previous years. I just, I feel like we almost need to start a campaign, maybe like a write-in thing where everybody like signs their name to a ballot or something like that. It will be so disappointing if we have to go to Chicago in February and we don't get Zion in the dunk contest. That's basically the only thing I want besides good health and good cheer for everyone I I care about, uh, you know, coming into the holiday season, give us Zion in the dunk contest. That's my heat check, Rob. Well, you heard it here first. Zion's going to be in the dunk contest, rocking the full astronaut look. Can't wait. Oh, can you imagine? How high do you think he could fly? He could probably dunk on like a 15-foot hoop if we got him in the astronaut gear. All right, Rob, (laughs) clearly we've gone on long enough. Thanks so much to the amazing Open Floor Globe members for emailing us. Openfloormail at gmail.com. 
openfloormail at gmail.com. Your questions, comments, and takes have sustained the show. I really appreciate it. I know Rob does too. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can search for our page. It's two words, open floor. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Hey, Rob, I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. Don't forget to follow me on there, guys. I appreciate it. Until next week, Rob, I'll talk to you. Later, Ben. <laughs>